I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome back to The Brand is Female. In today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Shiro Mururi, the founder of Pendo International Projects, a Canadian charity that provides affordable early childhood care and education to children in Kenya, where Shiro is from. She fled her country after her then-husband attempted to murder her following years of domestic abuse. Shiro credits the power of education in shaping the trajectory of her life marked by extraordinary resilience. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship programs. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. Shiro has been building schools since 2006. She is a South After speaker and an award-winning social entrepreneur. Pendo International Project's most recent project is Pendo School Kenya, serving 150 young children and impacting the lives of more than 2,000 community members. Shiro came to Canada seven years ago as an asylum seeker, and she currently sits on the board of Sojourn House Refugee Shelter, which housed her as a newcomer. Her stirring and powerful story of growing up an AIDS orphan in one of Kenya's toughest slums, surviving an attempted homicide, and the abduction of her young daughter was recently featured in Toronto Life magazine. In 2022, Shiro was awarded the Echoing Green Fellowship, a prestigious award whose past recipients include First Lady Michelle Obama, American political activist Van Jones, and other prominent global figures. Shiro embodies the true essence of resilience and community service. She's focused on helping women and children access resources to help them grow. She's currently doing a capital campaign to raise money for a new school building at Pendle School, Kenya, and you'll find links to support her organization in our show notes. Here is my conversation with Shiro Mururi. Shiro, it's such a pleasure having you on The Brennis Female today. Thank you for making time to speak with me. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here as well. I hope you had a nice weekend. I did. Thank you. It's great to start the week with this conversation. Uh, We met uh, not that long ago, and obviously you have uh, an incredible story to share. And I think when you share your story, you inspire a lot of people and a lot of women uh, specifically. So I'm very looking forward to our chat, and I'm excited for for listeners to uh, learn more about you and all the work that you do. So I usually start these conversations by going to the origin story of uh, my guest's journey. And in your case, your journey started in Kenya. Um, and growing, if you if you think back to your childhood years, and I want to hear about you know what childhood was like for you. What kind of future were you envisioning for yourself? And 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 was there you know a career that you were even thinking of at that point? Yeah, that's a interesting question because I grew up in one of the largest slums in Nairobi and. Um, my parents died of HIV AIDS. So growing up in a slum as a slum girl child was um, quite challenging, as you can imagine. So I think for me, I didn't think college was in my radar. I never even thought I'll make it to college because, you know, college is... um, in Kenya for people who can afford to go to college. So for me, I thought the only way to um, start a career was doing something that did not require any money or any tuition. So believe it or not, Eva, I wanted to be in the army. 
So I wanted, yeah. So I wanted to be uh, in the army, and I thought that that would be a pathway for me to explore the world. And um, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> and tell me about role models that you know were around you, and uh, maybe it was family, maybe it was you know just people that you grew up with. And were there women specifically who were kind of a you know a source of inspiration for you back then? And and they, they could have been in the media or, you know, culture in general. It doesn't have to be someone who was close uh, to you. Um, I think for me, first, I grew up in a household that we had no electricity, no running water. So we had, you know, uh, we had no access to, to TV. No so. TV, no media. Yeah. <laughs> no TV, no nothing. But as a young girl growing up, my dad really insisted uh, that we get an education. So mm-hmm. for me, anyone who managed to leave the slum, was my role model. It didn't matter. For me growing up, my, my, you know, and the realization that the slum was a place I needed to live and escape didn't come until later. Because for me, that was where I was born. That is all I knew. And I come from a family, my paternal family is, uh, the entire generation is from the slum. So my dad, Mm. his parents, his parents before that. So for me, uh, growing up, that's all I knew. But then when I realized there must be something bigger out there. So anyone who made it out was my role model. And what did it look like when someone made it out? Was it through education? If they were able to go to school, stay in school, then they had access to to different opportunities? Yeah. So one of them is joining the army. So that's mm-hmm. one of the things that, that, that I knew. That, you know, that's a, yeah. That's a gateway out of the slum was joining through them. But there mm-hmm. weren't so many people who made it out because the the um, the slum is a vicious cycle. It's right. it's so easy to get swallowed in the slum. And anyone who makes it out, it's a very big deal. So there were a few people who did make out uh, make it out, and I was trying to follow into their footsteps. Mm. And were, was it easier for men or for women or was it kind of equal? Absolutely. It was easier for men. Mm-hmm. I tried to join the army and one of the things, and this is now later in life. Um, so they would do like a physical test, you know, can right. you, how fast can you run? Can you lift this and that? But when I showed up for the training, the, the first thing they did is weigh me. And mm-hmm. they just turned me back. They said you're underweight. So oh, I never wow. made it. I never even did any any kind of physical uh, test. But uh, the men definitely uh, were at a higher advantage. Right. Yeah. It was it was easier for them to get access to those opportunities. Yeah. So, yeah. what opportunities you know you f- you felt were available to you? Was it was it going to be school? Obviously, and if so, you know what kind of path through school? And also, I would as as you just brought up, uh, I would imagine school was very expensive, so it wasn't easy to make it to advanced studies. Yeah. So for me, I, I want to say that the only opportunity that I had uh, in my surrounding was getting a basic education, which right. means like elementary. Uh, and even going to high school was, you know, there's a very high dropout rate uh, back at the time for people who never made it through high school. Because, again, it required school fees and there was hardly any uh, secondary education that was available for free. So the only opportunity for me that I had was elementary education, but I got lucky and I got somebody who helped me get through um, high school. So yeah, we don't have a very good social, um, we have a weak social 
service and development in Kenya. Um, right. So which limits people like, like who come from my background in that way. Something that came up in your story, uh, you've mentioned that both your parents died of HIV AIDS. Um, and I know there was huge stigma uh, around HIV. There still is today on the African continent. There is huge stigma around HIV in Canada. And, you know, we often think of AIDS as a reality that affects men uh, more so than, than other groups. But the reality is across the planet, there are more women than men infected with HIV. But the stigma continues, uh, you know, it's 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 a, it's a, it's a barrier for women to get tested. It's a barrier for women to have access to care and treatment. Um, is that something that you know you've experienced because you've lost your your parents to HIV/AIDS? And do you think we're making progress uh, in terms of fighting that stigma? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, and it's a it's a HIV/AIDS is a topic that um, is very dear to me, and also is a topic that really haunts me, because as a child, <clears throat> excuse me, growing up as an HIV/AIDS orphan meant that, and this was back in the nineties and and early uh, late eighties, early nineties. There mm-hmm. was a lot of stigma a lot of misinformation and everybody, we became like this, these kids, my sister and I, that nobody wanted to, mm. to associate with right. both family and friends. Right. Because, and all because of the stigma that surrounded HIV AIDS, uh, where people assumed automatically that we had right. it because our parents had it. And the misinformation, if I share, I don't know, cutlery with them, I'm going to get it. If I touch them, I I'm going to get it. Them, if whatever, I, you yeah. know, yeah, if I share food with them. Uh, and so for me, this it, it, it was really a bad experience for, for my sister and I. Uh, but, you know, we've overcome that. I keep talking and advocating for it and uh, advocating my community. But women are really, really highly mm-hmm. um, affected. And I say this because being an HIV AIDS orphan meant that I, among uh, together with other orphans, were left under the care of grandmothers. So grandmothers uh, usually mm. take the huge burden of taking care of orphans who are af- affected by HIV/AIDS. So have we made progress? Yes, we have in terms of there is treatment now. You know, there's medication, free medication actually in Kenya that is given by the government. Right. That is a huge progress because in my parents' time, right. yeah. there was no free medication. The ARVs, antiretroviral drugs, were not available at the time. So that has really completely changed the whole AIDS um, landscape. landscape. Yeah, landscape in Kenya. However, women are still highly mm-hmm. infected by HIV-AIDS to this day. And it's worldwide. It's not just a case in Kenya or a case in Africa. So it's happening as well um, in places like Canada, for example. Yeah. So we still have a lot of advocacy to do. But the problem is because of the drugs that are now available, the, the HIV-AIDS topic I feel is forgotten. And sometimes I feel like I need to stand on top of a mountain and just say, hey, everyone, it's still there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's been forgotten. It's been overtaken by other things, but HIV AIDS is still alive. It's still out there. People are still getting it and women are still the most vulnerable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, you're absolutely right in saying that it's forgotten. And yet Canada is falling behind other G7 countries in terms of getting closer to end the epidemic. So we're not going in the right direction here either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm. So tell me about the next chapter, because I know that, you know, there's been kind of a common theme in your, in your journey. And that is of uh, launching schools, essentially schools in Kenya. But I want to hear you talk about how you first made that happen back home in Kenya. And, you know, how did the project go about? Where did the idea come from? uh, And how, how you made it happen? Yeah. So when I was about 20 years old. Um, I had barely finished high school. Um, you know, I came across an organization, a Norwegian organization that was new in the country and was working with deaf children exclusively, mm. educating deaf children. And they were new in the country and they needed um, a big audience. And the best way to do that was through one of the largest slums actually in Africa, which happens to be Nairobi, Kenya. And I just happened to be uh, one exactly what they needed. Someone who had the slam experience and someone who was Mm. willing to give it a try. So um, I ended up being given a task that I had never gone to school for, had had never gone through teacher training, but I had the skills and uh, I had, I, I, I think I have always been a community builder. I just didn't know it. And that's exactly what they needed. So I mobilized the community, created awareness about educating deaf kids. And then they came up with the idea of how about we start an early childhood education center because that way we will attract people to come to us instead of us going to look for them. And so that's mm-hmm. where it started. At the age of 20, I built my first early childhood education center, uh, but exclusively focused on deaf kids. And then so I worked there for about um, four years. But prior to that, they saw something in me and said, you know what, we're going to take you to college. So they did oh, wow. my college and then I worked there for a few years and I left because I saw there was a bigger picture out there. You mm-hmm. know, I was like, there is um, a need for early childhood care and education. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge gap because the government doesn't fund that sector. And you find that women do not have a place to take their kids. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they are not able to participate in the labor force. So I started thinking about how can I fill in the gap, not just to provide early learning services for kids, but also provide women an opportunity to be economically independent. So I went and started my own private Montessori kid. Uh, school, mm-hmm. but for mm-hmm. kids who do not have any hearing challenges. So it was okay. just um, mm-hmm. a, Montessori, a Montessori school. I, it did so well. And by the fourth year, I actually had two two branches, two schools. And then stuff happened in my life. And then I had to flee Kenya and come to Canada as an asylum seeker. So at that point, you made, you know, a massive life decision, taking the jump to, well, leaving everything behind at home in Kenya, coming to Canada. So I want to know what made you want to, uh, you know, make that that leap and take that leap of faith, you know, how you heard about Canada even as an option, and what kind of circumstances in your life made you want to make such a radical change? Yeah. Um, so I always say that no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. Mm-hmm. And no one leaves home unless home doesn't want you anymore. Mm-hmm. So I am a big advocate of domestic violence. And that's because I am a survivor of domestic violence. And mm-hmm. my story was actually um, published by Toronto Life magazine. It's, a, it's an eight-page long story <laughs> that, was, that appeared in February 
But um, so I found myself in a situation where I became um, a victim of a crumbling judicial system where mm. I am an attempted homicide survivor ended up in hospital, you know, stayed there for quite a while and had to undergo through a lot of surgeries. And when I came out of there, there was no support. But the media in Kenya actually took a lot of interest in my story. Mm-hmm. And they, I, want, I like to say they ate up the story because it was everywhere, everywhere, newspapers, uh, television. And the pressure from the media um, made the government take notice, but it was too late at that time. I, my life was already in danger. But when I came to Canada, I actually came as a visitor. I was just coming mm-hmm. here to visit and to wait for things to cool down for me to go back. Okay. It was going to be temporary. Yeah, it was going to be temporary. And right. I did do that. I came the first time. Um, and then I thought things were better. I, I had mm-hmm. come for only um, two weeks. Then I went back to Kenya. But then it was worse. I came back again. And somebody mm-hmm. said, sure, you know, you can actually seek asylum. That's the first time right. I had ever heard of, you know, seeking asylum. I had no idea what that was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those are the circumstances that led me um, to Canada. And then, as you know, um, in the process of that, I also, uh, my eight-year-old daughter was abducted. Um, and mm-hmm. I haven't seen I'm her. So sorry. Yeah, since then. And she's 16 now, but I haven't seen her in the last eight years, seen her or spoken mm. to her in the last eight years. So it was quite a journey coming here, you know, staying in a shelter, uh, being homeless, losing everything um, and starting to pick up the pieces. Um, yeah, it was quite hard. So when you say, you know, the media picked up on your story uh, back home in Kenya, and, and I'm, again, so sorry to hear about everything you've you've been through, which is uh, a, a horrible story, but it's also what makes you extremely resilient and a, and a survivor. But um, is this, you know, do you think that your case is something that is prevalent? Um, is it something where, you know, there's a lack of support in general? I mean, I think it's a there's a reality around domestic violence um, where it's, it's never, it's never an easy scenario. Um, I think there's a lack of support for women in general across the globe, but um, in your case specifically, I mean, you had to flee the country, right. To stay safe, which is pretty extreme. So that's an interesting question that you asked me about um, if this is something that happens Uh, and you know, globally, we we know that at least um, more than six more than six women are killed every hour by someone they know in their family, and usually these are male or intimate partner, and those are really really scary figures. Extremely and, scary figures. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, and in Canada, we actually lose a woman every six days killed wow. by an intimate intimate partner. Yeah. So. I always say that domestic violence does not discriminate. It can Mm -hmm. happen to anyone. It doesn't matter your education background, financial background. It doesn't really matter. So in Kenya, my case was just, unsurprisingly, it wasn't that jaw-dropping. The only reason why the media took interest is because I actually almost got murdered because I ended up in hospital and... That and then my perpetrator followed me to hospital. Like he literally came and uh, tried to attack me again while I was in the hospital. So there was a lot of things. Yeah, there was a lot of things that led to the media taking interest in this story. Right. And then also uh, the severity of what I went through and the fact that there was no action by the police mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, to to arrest the perpetrator. So. 
a lot of things were of interest to the media. But I can tell mm. you that if you ask anyone, it's something that happens all the time in Kenya. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you came to Canada and how was that? How were kind of the, you know, the first, the first few months getting used to a completely new country and, you know, way of doing things. And uh, did you know anybody here in Canada when you, when you arrived? Yeah. So it was a friend of a friend who introduced me to a friend. Right. <laughs> so it was a, a long chain, but anyway, I did end up staying in the shelter mm-hmm. um, in the middle of winter. So I came, I came in the middle of winter and, uh, oh my gosh, that December, <laughs> when I was told to, to I actually landed in New Brunswick and somebody said, mm, you probably don't want to be here. You need to go to Toronto. That's where you're going to get help. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up in Toronto and, uh, yeah, I stayed in the shelter, did not have mm. any appropriate winter clothes. Um, but the most amazing thing is that I found a community. I found mm-hmm. so many people who are willing to help me. Um, and I found so many people who saw the need and put their hand up and yeah. I reached out and accepted it because some of the, sometimes there is help out there, but we are always afraid of seeking out help, whether it's Absolutely. offered or not. And even sometimes when it's offered, for, especially for someone like me, based on my background, I have always mm. been um, taken care of myself. Like right. I'm the eldest of two kids. I'm only a year older than my sister, but my entire life, I have never had anyone looking out for me, especially mm-hmm. growing up as a young child. So it's always hard for me to get help in terms of saying, Hey, can you help me? Mm-hmm. But coming, mm-hmm. coming to Toronto actually made me realize that it doesn't mean I am weak because absolutely yeah accepting help yeah because in yeah. the past i've always wanted to be like this really strong girl child who is fighting our way through the slum right right <laughs> and then i later realized in life that you wanted to be in the army so that's a yeah, good exactly. indication <laughs> yeah but then later in life i realized no it doesn't mean and and you know for me the biggest word was people will view me as weak mm-hmm. like i need to be this tough person that people um, in the slum would be like, don't joke with that one, <laughs> mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. But so the interpretation of, of that meant that I never asked for help. And even when it was offered, I never took it because mm-hmm. I I wanted people to view me in a different way. Right. But right. then I've come, you know, it's, 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 a, it's been a lot of unlearning and relearning. Right. Yeah. Very so I found an amazing. Yeah. I found an amazing community uh, that helped me pick up the pieces. And you mentioned the article that appeared in Toronto Life where, you know, you were very transparent about your your entire journey and the, the violence that you experienced. Um, and, and you've mentioned a coverage that the case received in Kenya as well. Do you think that your story is helping maybe women who are in a similar situation or hopefully, you know, the judicial system and law enforcement kind of see the real risk of domestic violence because a situation that might seem like it's not a big deal can escalate, you know, all the way to murder. Um, are you kind of, you know, are you having those conversations? Do you think that you're helping change the narrative a little bit? Absolutely. And um, I think I have received so many messages from mm-hmm. ever since the article was published. Um, 
so many women have reached out to me saying, thank you, Shiro, for sharing your story. Thank you for showing me that I am not alone. Thank you for showing me that it's possible to pick up the pieces. I've had women, uh, the, the other thing that I've experienced that I wasn't expecting is women reaching out to me for kind of a recipe. Like, what's the recipe hmm. for escaping these kind of situations, wow. starting over and rebuilding your life despite all these circumstances? So, and then uh, in the beginning, I, I was like, I felt a lot of pressure to come up with a very smart and very mm. great recipe. <laughs> so that put a pressure, so, so much pressure on me. And then I realized, no, I know what I know through my own experiences. Yeah. And I'm not going to try and be this therapist uh, self-made. So yeah, that, right, that right. was interesting to receive those kind of questions. Like, I mean, this situation, Chiro, what should I do? Mm. Uh, but uh, it's been a lot of admiration. And yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And women actually realizing how do you do it, Shiro? So that's the question I get asked a lot is how do you do it? Mm-hmm, how do mm-hmm. you go from being bankrupt emotionally, physically, financially, and having your child taken away from you and then mm-hmm. rebuilding not just your life, but mm-hmm. then creating this organization that you've now created and helping other, other kids back in the country? How do you do it? So that's mm-hmm. a question I get asked a lot. Yeah. Um, and I... Eva, I don't know how I do it. I just wake up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other. Well, that's that's good advice right there, right? And but you are absolutely, you know, a role model for for resilience. This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women and Enterprise, and they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice, puts guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way, so we can all share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. So I do want to talk about the organizations that you've created. So mm-hmm. you got to Canada, you know, there were there, there was a little bit of time in shelters and trying to figure out what, what your plan was going to be. And I, I imagine, you know, just surviving and, and being able to uh, figure out how to how to stay here. Um, and then you had this project again, you had an idea uh, that was kind of connecting to what you've already had built uh, in Kenya, supporting uh, schools, supporting early education so that kids in Kenya have more options when it comes to education. So tell me about how you got started and what drove you to want to kind of, you know, do something for children back in Kenya again, because you could have really easily said, you know, I'm done with the country. I want to do something else and, and build a new life. Uh, and, and you're choosing to help the community yet again. Yeah. So 90% of all refugees on the planet are women and children. Mm, mm-hmm. So having um, gone through that and knowing that the majority of the poorest people in the world are also women and children. And statistically, there's about uh, 650 million women are not able to work because of lack of childcare. And that is compared to 40 million men. 
Because obviously childcare falls mostly under women. And then yeah. eight out of 10 of these kids live in Africa or the, the, the global South. So I was sitting in my $500 basement after I moved the, uh, from the shelter and thinking to myself, I have a small piece of land that I inherited from my father. I'm never going to go and live on that piece of land. What should I do? And at the time, no one would hire me as an early childhood educator because my my education wasn't recognized in Canada and I needed mm. to go back to go. So, mm-hmm. you know, the usual, sadly, um, story. Yeah, a lot of challenges for newcomers to Canada, right? Yeah, so I took up what I like to call a survival job, you know, a job to mm-hmm. pay my bills. So that's what I did, got a survival job and decided that I am going to go back to doing what I love to do. But at the time, I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, I'm just going to mobilize my community back home in Kenya, find out who can go and help me build a one-room daycare center for the children who live near the community. So what Mm -hmm. happens was there was a coffee factory near the land that I owned. And the women in that community would take their kids and have them on their backs while they picked the coffee. While they worked. While they worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was like, how can I use this land that means so much to me for the greater good of the community? Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, Mm -hmm. I as Shiro, with the kind of salary I have, which is not much, I think I can afford to build one room if I sacrifice the rest of my salary that doesn't pay rent and food. And that's what I did. Anything that didn't go on rent or food, I saved it and sent it back home and mobilized my community to start the project. So that's what we did. We started one room. Mm. But the more I spoke to people at my workplace or my friends here in Toronto, everybody was interested. They were like, what What? What are you doing, Shiro? Because they would find me talking uh, in Swahili on the phone because you know, it's like <laughs> a seven-hour difference. So every lunchtime, they'd find me really like negotiating on the phone. <laughs> they'd be like, what are you talking about? What's up? Every lunchtime, I find you here with a pen and paper and on your phone speaking a language I don't understand. Mm-hmm. So the more I spoke to people, the more they were like, do you need help? Mm-hmm. Do, do you need anything? Uh, what's the project? Do you have a presentation? And I remember the first time that I thought this would be can be bigger is when one of my colleagues actually said, "Shiro, give uh, do come and pitch me. I want to give hmm. five thousand dollars for your project, but I'm not just going to hand you the money. You need to create a presentation. Come and pitch me and tell me pitch why. To me. I should yeah. give you <laughs> why I should give you five thousand dollars. Honestly, he changed everything." Because the moment I, I was like, how do I even pitch? I've never pitched. Mm-hmm. Before. Mm-hmm. That was great practice for, for pitching the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, I've never fundraised, but for $5,000, I am going to pitch. <laughs> so I found myself like Googling, finding mm-hmm. out how to pitch, how to do a presentation. And within one day, I had a presentation and I made an appointment. I went and pitched and I got my $5,000. And Wonderful. then he said, go and spread the same message to everyone Mm -hmm. and anyone you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was the beginning. (laughs) Well, and, you know, you've mentioned that you've done this, you don't know how it happened, you were putting one foot in front of the other, but I think you're exhibiting amazing and inspiring leadership. And something I like to ask entrepreneurs on this show are their definition of leadership. So I want to know in your case, what does being a leader mean to you? And 
are there other leaders now that inspire you? You've talked about, you know, when you were growing up in a slum, role models were pretty much anybody that was able to make it out of the slum, going, you know, to the army or uh, getting an education. So what what is leadership for you and who are who are leaders that you look up to today? Yeah, um, I think for me, leadership is being able to empower your team. And in my case, I run a school remotely. Yeah, you know, not um, easy. Yeah, I have a team of 18 staff. We have 150 kids um, and I run it remotely. And what I've come to realize <laughs> is that sometimes as an entrepreneur and as a, and as a leader of an organization, a founder of an organization, you want to have your hands in everything. Mm-hmm. It's your baby. This is your mm-hmm. business. It's your baby. You know, you want to make sure everything is perfect. But what I've come to learn is there is a lot of power in ensuring that your team can make decisions independent of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your the way your team is running your organization, in my case, remotely, is a reflection of my leadership. Mm-hmm. So how do I want my leadership style to reflect out into the world? Right. So that means I have to make sure that I empower my team to make decisions independent of me. Mm-hmm, but it mm-hmm. has been a, a, um, a learning curve and I've had to learn a mm-hmm. lot of things, you know, patience and say, and, and being, being able to be comfortable with the decisions that they make because they are the ones on the ground. I'm not the, on the ground. They know what's happening on the ground. They're the ones who are there. I communicate with them every single day, but empowering them means they are reflecting my leadership style mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. don't have to be trusting, you know, trust is very important. Yeah, that? absolutely. You know, when you're running a business, you have a team, you have to be able to trust them and they have to be able to trust you. Mm-hmm. So I trust them both ways. Yeah. yeah, I have empowered them. I, ha- I have given them, um, obviously I, I don't, they just don't do whatever they want. We mm-hmm. have a very good communication style and we communicate every single day and we rely on each other and we have, um, a way of communicating despite the distance and despite the, the challenges that come with the time difference. So that's mm-hmm. leadership for me. Le- leadership is how does your team reflect your leadership style? And are you empowering your people, your team, to make decisions independent of you? And mm-hmm. are you sharing the power that you have as a leader? How mm-hmm. are you distributing that power? Are you the be all and are you the, the center of everything or have you distributed it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that is so important. <laughs> It does. And, and, you know, in entrepreneurship, that's key, right? Because I think, especially as women, we, we tend to think that, you know, we can do it all ourselves and we just, we place so much pressure. We carry the, you know, the weight of the world on our shoulders and we can only go so far as an individual. So that trusted team is, is really key. Uh, so I love that you're connecting that to, uh, to positive leadership. So who are leaders who inspire you today? Yeah, um, so I would say one of them is definitely a very amazing leader. Her, her name was, because she's passed away now, her, her name was Wangari Madai. Uh, she was an um, an environmentalist. She was a um, politician. She was the Nobel, the first African Nobel mm. Prize winner. And yeah, she's, she's my role model. She's my hero. And uh, to this day, you know, I, I still look up to her. Mm, I I love that. That's a great example. Yeah. And 
what do you think in general are the obstacles that, you know, we, we have in our way in women in terms of living up to our own potential? And I love how you've brought up that you discovered early on that, you know, it wasn't a sign of weakness to ask for support and people were willing to support you, which is interesting because that comes up a lot in conversation with women entrepreneurs where we, you know, we tend to think we can do it all on our own. And then we realize that there, there are actually a lot more individuals than we think who are willing to help and, and lend a hand. Um, are there other things that are obstacles for women? Yeah, I think um, not just an obstacle. I would say that the, the old boys club has been the only club for too long. Right. And, yeah. and I always say that you should surround yourself with women who would mention your name in a room full of opportunities. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. you have to aspire to be that woman who is mentioning other women in that yes. room full of opportunities. Absolutely. And yeah. if we embody that, we, we can be the most powerful force, you know, women empowerment. Because women supporting women for me, I think, is very important. Mm. I love that. That is so important. You're absolutely mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. We talked about your experience uh, surviving domestic violence, surviving even murder attempt. Um, and there is support. There is, you know, it's so important to support women who are going through domestic violence of, of any kind uh, here and anywhere around the world. Do you think that there is progress? Do you see that things are changing? Is the conversation changing? And, you know, for women who listen to this conversation, how can we help is it you know advocating is it you know trying to get more support from government organizations and so on or is it more of a mindset shift and maybe it's all those things mm, I'd say it's all of all those things but I hate to say it but we've barely made progress mm -hmm. because when I think back close to you know like seven years ago when I had to leave everything behind is not so long ago absolutely And, and the stats prove it. The stats yeah. are still horrible today and they're not going in the right direction from what I yeah. can see. Yeah, and COVID-19 made things worse. We, right. We've heard about it, how uh, COVID-19 really put a spotlight on domestic violence mm -hmm. and violence against, against women. So, I mean, um, it's a conflict for me in terms of have we made progress and have we not made progress? Right. We have not made progress based on my experience. Mm -hmm. and But as women, we hold the power. I always say that life is not what happens to you, is how you react to what happens to you. So we have the agency to take control of our life, regardless of what is handed to you. And I think I always start, say that don't expect somebody to come and save you. Mm -hmm. You have it within you to save yourself. Mm -hmm. And let me you know sometimes it's very easy to have a pity party and um <laughs> <laughs> that is true yeah but no one is coming to save you yeah. you have to be the one to go out there and do it yourself yeah so have we changed in terms of that yes because as a woman i grew up in a very violent environment mm. and i've had to fight my way through life to even be here today mm. and so i bring that i bring that Uh, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do this and no one is going to stop me. You know, not even the sky is the limit for me. Right. So I love, I mean, that. I love that seeing done. that passion. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier said than, said than done, but that, that's what has kept me going. I'm like, mm. no one is stopping me. I am mm -hmm. going, I'm going to go for it because 
every single day when you look around you, women are still being put down. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, women are still be- being seen as the weaker sex. Mm-hmm. We are not. So don't wait for permission. I always mm-hmm. say that um, if my light is too bright, mm-hmm. Put on some some shades because right. <laughs> no one is going to stop me. <laughs> yeah, don't blame yourself. <laughs> um, you are, I think, a master now at building community, and there's something very inspiring there. So, what would be your your advice to women who are looking to build community? You know, in a different context that's suited to their project. But how? What are your tips on building community in general? Yeah, um, and I'll give an example with the work that I do. So the work that I do with women is, I've realized childcare has always been centered on on the child. Right. And we do that. We are actually registered by the Ministry of Education in Kenya, and in Canada we are a registered charity. Right. So our work focuses on eliminating the systemic barriers that are huge in terms of accessing childcare and education. But right. what can childcare and early learning do for women? So mm-hmm. we need to we need to have a balance of both. Right. How can childcare help women and how can childcare help the child? So for yeah. us, we're, we're doing something that is very holistic. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that that is a sense of community. Yeah, absolutely. When you, yeah, when you when you when you bring and I'm speaking about this because this is the work that I do. Mm-hmm. And I've realized that the women who bring kids in our school, 95% of them report that they are able to go out there and mm-hmm. look for work. Of and course. They, yeah. it, it helps the entire, the broader community, right? The families, the town, the, you know. Exactly. And so our school, we run it as a social enterprise because we want mm-hmm. our school to be able to self to be self-sustainable. So, we encourage our women to go out there, look for work and tell them, hey, we are looking after your child. I think it's fair for you to pay the fees. So then they, in return, they feel so economically empowered. Yeah. And I feel that this is, we restore dignity. Yes, like, it's not charity. They're not, they're not getting this for free because they're underprivileged. Exactly. We give them a hand up, not a hand out. So yeah. you should, they, they are so proud when they're able to come and give us the bank slip and say, hey, I paid my child's school fees. Mm. It gives mm. them so much pride. And so for me, that's a sense of community. Empowering mm. in the work that I do, empowering the kids, but the women as well. As, and it's you bring up such a good point because often the conversation we have around childcare is just about the child, but women are kind of the you know the the number one the number one group benefiting from whatever happens with childcare because as you brought up, women end up typically being in charge of most you know household chores, including taking care of children. Um, so that's a that's a great example. Yeah. Um, in general what do you think we can do to be better supporters of women? And you've just talked about how your work with early childhood, you know, supports a broader community of women and families in general, but in, in, in the world in general, what can we do to show up for other women? Yeah, I think first of all, as women, we need to support each other. Mm-hmm. And then second, I find, I, I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record because it's something that is said over and over and over. Everything that a man can do, a woman can do. Yes. Right. And so this whole, uh, I, I feel that sometimes you have gender roles that start right from the household. Like women right. are supposed to do to take care of the kids, and then the men are supposed to go out there and you know uh, 
climb the career ladder. And as women, I think we also try to, uh, and, and I think this is something that we as women do ourselves disservice by trying to prove that we can run a house and mm. we, can, uh, yeah. we can go out there and climb the career ladder. I think for us, we have, we have to expect the men to also participate in both. Absolutely. Yeah, because I've point. spoken to a few women who are like, right now I have a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a two-year-old daughter and I was working full-time and running Pendo International Projects as at the same time. So I had people ask me, you're running a charity on the side. You are running a school in Kenya and you're yeah. working full-time. And you're a mom. You have a two-year-old. And then I realized, yeah, I realized sometimes we want to prove to the world that yes, yeah. we can do all these things. And yes, we can. But guess what? Even men Just, need need to come in and do their share. And there's a price to pay, right? Because and that's how women burn out or that's why women leave the workforce. We end yes. up having to make a sacrifice at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what's on the agenda for you? I mean, you've already accomplished, you know, absolutely inspiring things. Uh, I know you're continuing to grow the network for, uh, for the school project, but what are things that are on your vision board for the, the next six months or the year ahead? Is this personal or for my project? It can be. <laughs> so I'll tell you, you both. <laughs> Absolutely. Perfect. So personally, um, so I learned how to snowboard in 2017. <laughs> you embrace Canadian winters. I like that. I did. I did. I'm actually a decent snowboarder. So for me, I, I want to do um, heli snowboarding. That's, that's, oh, yeah. on my, okay. that's, on my, okay, that's my personal goal for the next couple <laughs> of years. <laughs> And then um, professionally, we currently are doing a fundraising campaign to build a new school. Okay. So, so we are building a new school because the demand is so high, and mm-hmm. we have uh, we have our budget was one million. We've raised two fifty, so we have <laughs> we have we still have um, you know more money to raise for our building, yeah. and our new school is going to allow us to have four hundred and fifty kids every single day. Uh, in our center. So that's, oh, wow. that's impressive. Uh, yes. Yes. So that's what's on my agenda. We'll link, we'll include for anyone who's listening and wants to support, um, yes. we will link how they can access your fundraising campaign. Thank you. Yeah. Well, those are, those are fantastic goals. And it sounds like knowing, you know, your, your passion and your resilience and your motivation, um, I'm pretty confident that you'll be able to reach them. And in closing, I want to know, you know, your top three pieces of advice for women, it can be business, general, you know, what are three things that you'd like every woman to know? So for me, the number one thing is don't be afraid of taking risks because, mm-hmm. uh, and by risks, I mean calculated risks, because in the end, you only regret the chances that you didn't take. Mm-hmm. So take calculated risks and remember that your comfort, comfort zone will literally kill you. <laughs> I like that. That's a good way of phrasing it. <laughs> yeah. And then the second thing is, and this is something that I have actually, I've had to learn because of my circumstances is learning how to let go of things that you can't control. That's another good one. Yeah. This has been a really, really big challenge for me because when my eight-year-old daughter was, was abducted, it almost de- destroyed me, Eva. Mm, I almost, I imagine. I, it almost destroyed me, destroyed yeah. everything about me. Then 
I realized there is nothing I can do about it. It's either I try and go and kidnap her back, but then I don't even know where to start. I don't have the mm. money. I'm a mess. It's dangerous. This is a situation I cannot control. But then how can I do the opposite instead of focusing so much on the thing that I cannot control? What mm. can I do about it? that doesn't involve controlling the situation. And mm. for me, I have applied that in everything in my life. If I cannot control a situation, for example, in my daughter's case, my goal in life right now is to be the best, badass woman mm. that exists. Mm -hmm. Because this way, if I let this destroy me, then my child, who I know and believe one day I will meet, will find a broken woman. Mm. But if right. I do everything possible to rebuild my life and be this strong woman, she's going to find me ready. She's going to find mm. me ready. She's going to find me flourishing. She's going to be find me as that person who she says, Mama, you are a strong woman. So that mm. really fuels me every mm. single day. Letting mm. go of the things that I can't control and focusing on how can I be better. So that's the second thing. Uh, the third thing is... If you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fear of rejection uh, sometimes holds us back. Absolutely. It sure does. Yeah. yeah. yeah just sending me an email saying, hey, I know you know this person. Can you do an intro? I'm trying to, mm. I don't know, learn how to do one, two, three. Can you do an intro so I can get the thing that you need to get? So if you don't mm -hmm. ask, you don't get. Absolutely. And again, I think the biggest lesson there is you'll be surprised by how many people actually want to, you know, want to be helping, helping you reach your goals. So sometimes yeah. it's easy. It's introducing you to somebody else. You might not be able to do the thing the person is asking, but somebody else can. And I think we have to return the favor as well. Yeah. And I've had to learn that I can tell you what started um, as a one room daycare. Mm -hmm. By that year, by the end of that year, I actually ended up opening a um, it was a fully-fledged school recognized by the Ministry of Education, and we had four classrooms, oh, we had wow. two teachers. So what I thought would be a one room ended up being <laughs> four and being a school, not just a, a, a daycare center. So there's another lesson in there. Don't be afraid to dream big yes. because it is achievable, right? It's, yeah. I always laugh when I see these, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of coaching businesses for women and it's always, let's get you to six figures. Let's get you to the, you know, the, the first seven figures. It's like, no, can we go bigger? Can yes. we, why is there a limit? Why is there a ceiling here? Um, so you're, you're proving that uh, to be true. Yeah, speaking of that, my, uh, my future goal is to actually start a social franchise. Mm -hmm. Because I've realized that there are so many women who are running early childhood education centers but are not succeeding because they don't have the tools they need to succeed. Because it's it's a very informal right. sector where women wake up one day and say, I'm going to start a childcare, but then they keep popping up because they don't have right. the business skills and they don't have the curriculum or the early learning training that they need for their daycare centers or early learning centers to succeed. So. My future goal is to start a business in a box where I train the women who are running the early childhood education centers informally and mm -hmm. give them the tools they need to make it a formal business and run it successfully. So mm -hmm. that's, that's, um, that's in my radar. I love that. Well, I'm very confident that everything you're working on is going to be realized. I look forward to staying in touch and, and seeing where that leads you. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I think you are an inspiration, a role model for women. And again, you embody leadership uh, so wonderfully. And, and I thank you for your candor and being so transparent about your story. And I think it will inspire a lot of women as a result. So. 
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure has been mine. Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening today. If you did enjoy the show, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Yeah.